We are in Yeshua Perikei. We read, we discussed last week that the, the Psukim were late. Psukim, Psukim, Yud, Yud Aleph, Yud Beis, that the Jews had crossed the Jordan and they did the mass circumcision at Gilgal. And then it says that they, the Mun ceased. It says that by Yishbos Haman, the Mun that we read yesterday, the, we read the introduction of the Mun, the Mun began falling after they crossed the Amsuf. Kind of a poetic uh, bookend. It stopped. It stopped. Then the one stopped after they crossed the Yarden. The Jews had been eating man for forty years. That we we, we read that in, in yesterday's pasuk. Was this a man achlu arba'im shana? They ate the man for forty years in the desert from after Kriyas Yamsuf until until this point where they crossed the Yarden, entered Eretz Canaan, entered the Promised Land. And at, at that point, uh, the Yishbos Haman, the Mon ceased, and they began eating. That year, they began eating like regular people. They began eating the grain, the, the produce of Eretz Kenan. We mentioned, we discussed last week at length, there are different interpretations in the Talmud and in the Mepharshim here as to what the, what the causal connection was between these events. According to one approach, the, they would rather have eaten Mon. Mon was delicious. They, they, they liked the Mon. But they stopped eating the man because the man ended, so they had to go to Tuas Aretz. They had to do the second best and go to the ordinary, normal person food. According to another approach, they were, very, they were interested in eating the grain. They wanted to eat grain. The problem was, there's a prohibition called Chadash that the Torah says, You're not allowed to eat new grain until the carbon omer is brought. The carbon omer is brought on the second day of Pesach. That, that's, when this, that's when this event occurred. The, the Torah says, the Navi says, they brought the carbon Pesach on the 14th of Nisan, and then on the, on the 16th they brought the carbon Omer, and then they were able to start eating the new grain, because the new grain can only be eaten after the carbon Omer. The Gemara explains it was Machlokis whether the, din of, the, the, the prohibition of Chadash, the, whether it applied at that point in history or not. Some say it only applied after the 14 years of Kibush Vachiluk, after they had finished conquering and settling Eretz Canaan. Then the prohibition started. The prohibition was not in force yet, and according to that approach, the reason they stopped eating mun was because they ran out, but, uh, but, but, but they, they could have eaten grain all along, but they, they ate the mun as long as they had it. And according to another approach, the prohibition of Chadash did apply in that year, and, and, and that's why they couldn't eat grain until the 16th of Nisan, at which point they brought the Omer and they were able to eat the new grain. So that, that, that was what we covered, we covered last week. So I want to discuss today a little bit, not in the text of the Navi, but I want to take this opportunity to discuss a little bit more about the, the prohibition of Chadash, the, discuss what the halach is, what our practice is today. Just, uh, I want to just go through a survey of the, what is the story of the prohibition of Chadash. So Chadash and Yashan are two sides of the same coin. Chadash and Yashan are two Hebrew words. Chadash means new, Yashan means old. In the context of, in this context, the context of grain, chadash means grain, new grain, grain from the new year, and yashan means old grain, old and new are defined by whether the carbon omer has been brought or whether the 16th of Nisan has, has, has occurred. Every, every grain, the life cycle of grain, when grain grows from the ground, the chameshus mine dagan, the five, the five types of grain, wheat, barley, spelt, dry, fifth one is typically translated as oats, although there's debate about that, but wheat, barley, oats, belt, and rye, chita, saora, kusema, shifon, shibola, shuol, all those grains, the, the, the grains we make hamotzi and mizonas on, and so on, the chameshes mine dagon, those grains, as soon as they grow, they have the status of chadash, they're, they're new at that point, they become old, either when the carbon omer is brought, which was a carbon brought in the time of the temple on the, se- on the second day of Pesach, the 16th of Nisan, or, if there's no omer, bismanazeh, 
The Gemara has a discussion about that, but it says, Yom Hanev Kulo Aser, the 16th day of Nisan, where they should have brought to Omer, we, 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 we would like to bring it if there was a Mikdash, we can't bring it. The, the, the whole second day of Pesach, the 16th of Nisan, is all Aser until nightfall. The nightfall of the 17th, the third day of Pesach, that's when Chadash becomes Mujer, if there's no Omer. Bismanazeh, we have Sveikah Diyama. The reason we keep two days Yantif is because we, even though we know when the calendar is, but we, 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 we observe the way they used to observe it in the time of the temple, where they didn't always know until the witnesses, until the announcements uh, were spread by, by, by signals and, and, and riders and so on. So they, they didn't always know when Pesach was, so we have Sveikah Diyama, so we have two days. So we don't need Chadash. Those, when Chadash applies, Bismanazeh, we don't need Chadash until the 18th day of Nisan. We don't need the 15th, the 16th, or the 17th until the beginning of the fourth day of Pesach. We don't need Chadash because the Omer is brought on the 16th, the second day of Pesach. We don't have an Omer, so that whole day is Asr. It becomes Mutter at the end of that day. Add one more day for Sveikah Diyoma. So the first three days of Pesach are Asr, beginning with the, the 18th, beginning with the fourth day of Pesach. That's when Chadash is Mutter. So if we follow the Salacha, it follows that any grain that grows cannot be eaten from the time that grain grows. You have to check the calendar. Until the next 18th of Nisan, you cannot eat that grain. So if grain grows in the winter, you cannot eat it until several months. If grain grows in uh, this time of the year, Shvat, Kislev, you can't eat it until Pesach uh, for three or four months. If grain grows uh, Er or Sivan after Pesach, you can't eat it until the next Pesach. That's the halach of Chadash. This is a Pasuk in Pashas Emar. The Pasuk says, in Pashas Emar, we have one of the Torah sequences of the laws of the Yom Tovim. It says, on the second day of Pesach, you bring the carbon Omer. And it says, You can't eat grain or various grain products until until that day of the 16th of Nisan, which today works out to the 18th of Nisan, as we explain. And then it says, that the reason we, that this carbon is called carbon Haomer, Omer, of course, is the same word as Firas Omer, that the, the, the Omer is a measurement. Uh, omer we had yesterday also. The man was an Omer. The, 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 the man that fell was an Omer for each person. Omer like Ogolas. And, and Omer is a measure of volume. It's 43 and a fifth eggs. It's, uh, it's, uh, and it's, uh, so the carbon Omer was called the carbon Omer because it consisted of one Omer of barley. And Firas Omer is because you count 50 days from then. And 50 days later, you bring the Shtalechem, and that's the Yantif that we call Shavuos. Seven weeks, 49 days, that's the Yantif of Shavuos. So the question is, does the prohibition of Chadash apply bismanazeh? Are we Do we follow this prohibition? Does it apply for us? And if so, what do we do about it? So, 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 so some of you will have seen, if you buy products with kosher certification, you will occasionally see... Sometimes they have you know, optional or additional uh, certifications. They'll write Yashan. In Hebrew, Kemach Yashan sometimes. In English, Yashan, Y-O-S-H-O-N. That means that the Kashrus agency is certifying this particular product that it's made from Kemach Yashan, that it's made from grain that already exists, that already grew before the most recent Pesach. So right now, if a product says Yashan, that means it was made from grain that already grew last winter, basically. And... Last Pesach already transpired after that grain had grown, and the product is made from that grain, so that grain is Yasha. Now, by the fact that they, they add that as an optional uh, certification, that indicates that a, an ordinary Heksher does not certify that a product is Yasha. The, the, all the major Heksherim in the United States do not require that, that, that a product contain only Yasha grain for them to certify it as basic kosher. That they'll certify it as Yashan if they know that it's Yashan, but they, they, they will give basic certification as kosher 
even though the product is not yasha, meaning that the, the, the standard practice today is that we are not particular about yasha. The baseline kosher, what the shul will allow, what major kosher agencies certify, does not require that products be yashan. Even if the products are unknown, they will still certify the product as kosher. The question is why? If, the, if, if there is a, it's a pasuk in the Torah that you can't eat the new grain until the Omer is brought, or until the 16th or 17th or 18th of Nisan, so why do we not follow this with So before we go any further, we should note that this that, we don't, this that the, the halacha is not, is not universally, not widely followed, is only, in, only outside Israel, only in Chutzlars. In Israel, everyone is strict about Chadash. We'll discuss the reasons for that soon, but in Israel, it's automatic. Even if you don't see a mark on the product, no responsible hexer will certify a product in Israel unless it is Yashan. So those who do want to be meticulous about Yashan, one solution is to, is to look for Israeli products. Israeli products, can be, with, with a decent hexer, can be presumed to be Yashan. It's only in Chutzlars, which is most of the world, but it's, it's only in Chutzlars that we are not universally strict about Chadash for reasons that we'll discuss soon. So the question is why? Why, 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 are, we not, uh, why are we not meticulous about, about Chadash in Chutzlars? So the obvious answer, might, you might think, is that all, all, all the special halachas of grain and, and, and produce, they all apply only in Eretz Yisrael. Shemitah, Truma, we, we, we have to be makhpun on Shemitah if we get produce from Eretz Yisrael. But produce that grows in Arizona that grows in Idaho does not have the halachas of Shemitah. Produce that grows in California or Florida does not have the status of Trumas and Meisters, does not need it. So generally, all the mitzvahs that have, what we call mitzvahs at Tluyas Barat, mitzvahs that have to do with stuff that grows in the ground, typically do not apply outside Eretz Israel. So you might think, so what's the issue of Kaddish? Kaddish also has to do with uh, grain that grows in the ground, so why should it apply in Chutzlar? The Jews were being meticulous there, according to some approaches, because they were in Eretz Canaan now, but, but why, why would you think the Kaddish applies in Chutzlar? So the answer is that the Gemara explicitly says that it does. The Gemara says that Chadash applies b'chal makom midaraisa. Chadash applies, Chadash is asr minatara b'chal makom. Chadash is an exception to the general rule that mitzvahs that have to do with produce only apply in Israel. It's based on psukim. It says, it, it says the Isra of Chadash applies b'chal moshvasechem. It applies in all your habitations, which seems to mean that it applies even in Chutzlar. It applies, the Torah says, observe this law, b'chal moshvasechem. So the simple approach is that Chadash does apply in Chutzlar, it's Midaraisa. It's a Machlokis, the, the, the Machlokis Tanoim and the Machlokis among later authorities as well. There is actually a Machlokis whether Chadash applies in Chutzlar, and that's going to be one of the main avenues of Heter. But th- there are opinions, the major opinions, that Chadash applies in Chutzlar as well, and that's why we have to ask ourselves the question, why are we not so strict about Chadash in Chutzlar? So, historically it works like this. Historically, for at least 800 years or so, in Ashkenaz, in Ashkenazic countries, in Germany, in France, in Poland, in Ashkenazic countries, Jews, Ashkenazic Jews, were not meticulous about Chadash. That's a historical fact. From the time of the earlier Rishonim, the Arzeruah, we'll discuss soon, Ashkenazic Jews have not been strict about Chadash. Svardim, Svardim did not have the same tradition. Svardim were, typically, were historically strict. We'll discuss maybe reasons for that a little bit later, but Svardim historically were strict. And even today, the, 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 one of the groups in Klal Yisrael that is generally is meticulous about Chadash is Svardim. Not all Svardim. Many Svardim, especially in America, have adopted, I think, Ashkenazi practices because you know, the, the religious culture in America is, is, is largely controlled by Svardim. The Kashrus agencies are, are Svardim. So I, so I think... In, in, I'm sorry, the, the Kashrus agencies are Ashkenazim. Thank you. 
So many Sfardim, even those who are pious and meticulous, have adopted Ashkenazi practice. But if you look in our town, for example, of the dozen or two people I, I know who are meticulous about Chadash, several of them are, are, are Sfardim, because the Sfardim historically have a much stronger commitment to observing this law of Chadash than Ashkenazim do. So the question is, why, why historically did Ashkenazim not, not, not be meticulous about Chadash? Why did they ignore the Allah of Chadash? So there, the, the answer to that question exists on two levels. On what, one level is the halachic level, what is the halachic justification for it, and one level is the historical and practical level, which is why they relied on these lenient opinions. The practical level is because it was a desperate situation. Jews were not farmers, Jews, Jews did not control the food supply. Jews did not have the same level of transparency into the food supply that we have today with logistics and records and computers. So Jews typically were not in a position to afford to be able to practice Chadash. To practice Chadash, you have to be to, to observe Chadash, you have to be able to, to know when you have a particular grain or grain product, when, what year is this from, when was it harvested, what, what season, and Jews typically didn't know. The, 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 the farmers, the, the suppliers, the grocers were non-Jews. They had no way of knowing what was Chadash or what was Yashan. Even if there was some grain on the market that might have been Yashan, they had no way of sorting it out and knowing what was and what wasn't. So for Jews to, to be meticulous about Chadash would have meant that they would have had to give up grain products for a large chunk of the year. Uh, ju- ju- just to go through the practical reality. Grain is grown at different times of the year, depending on the country, depending on farming practices. Here in the U.S., we talk about winter wheat and summer or spring wheat. Spring, spring wheat is grown in the spring and harvested in the spring or summer. Winter wheat is grown in the winter. Winter wheat is always yasha. The reason is, not, not technically, it is, it is actually chadash when it grows, but because of the way logistics work, it takes several months from when grain grows until it gets to your shelf in the, in, as, as, as a grocery store consumer. If you see a grain product in the store, you, 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 can, rest, you can rest assured that it was actually grown several months ago. They, 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 have to, they have to harvest it, they have to grind it, they have to process it, they have to manufacture it. It takes months for it to get anywhere. So if grain grows in the winter, it won't get to the consumer for, let's say, four months, whatever, whatever the share is, so if grain grows in Kislev or Shvat, okay, so then it, it takes, let's say, a minimum, I don't know what the exact number is, but let's say four months to get to the consumer. So from, from let's say, Teves, four months, Teves, Shvat, Adar, Nisan, it's already past Pesach. So any grain, any grain that grew in winter, in the winter, by the time it gets to your shelf, is, is already Pesach past, because it's not enough time. It just can't get to you fast enough before... Pesach. So, so, in other words, right, right now, this year's winter grain, it's too early to have reached you as the consumer. Last year's winter grain grew before last Pesach. So, even though it's, right now it's before this coming Pesach, but any, anything, any winter wheat is, uh, is always fine because it can't get to the consumer before Pesach. Summer wheat, spring wheat is the problem because spring wheat can grow in, let's say, ER, Sivan, Tammuz, and then it can take three or four months to get to the consumer. By August, September time, that's when the, the problem starts. Between Pesach and August or so, there's no problem, because again, if the grain takes several months to get to the consumer, then right after Pesach, with Iyar, Nisan, Iyar, Sivan, the, there's no problem, because in, in those few weeks or a couple of months, any grain that grew before Pesach is mutter, is already considered yashan. Any grain that grew after Pesach wouldn't get to the consumer by now. So you have a, you have a clear window of several months before around August, September, where all the grain on the market does, for the consumer is all yashan. Starting August, September, there's been enough time since Pesach for the spring wheat to grow and to have made it through the supply chain, made it to the consumer. That's when the yashan season starts, around August, September. And from then until next Pesach, 
you have a problem of you have a problem of Yasha, of Kaddish. I'm using the number, the, I'm using the August September rather than a Jewish date on the Jewish calendar because the agricultural cycle obviously depends on the solar calendar, on the on the on the on the, on the secular calendar. So the, the, the halacha depends on Pesach, whatever it is, but. Uh, when the grain makes it to the market obviously depends on the solar calendar. So from August, September, which is where this year's spring and summer wheat are reaching the market, <coughs> until next Pesach, that's when the problematic season is, that period of the year. Even that period of the year, any grain that uh, winter wheat and, and summer wheat have different chemical, different, uh, different, different profiles in, 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 in what kind of flour they make, what kind of products are best made with them, Certain kinds of products are typically made with winter wheat. I don't remember all the rules. Pastas, crunchy things, doughy things, chewy things. The, the consistency of the product can determine what kind of wheat they use. So any product that we know uses winter wheat is never a problem. Because winter wheat can never get to the consumer without a pet with, before a Pesach passes. So it's any, any winter wheat product is always fine. Summer and spring wheat products, that depends. Within a few months after Pesach, they're fine. Because if it's a summer wheat product... Even if it's a summer wheat product, if it's still two months after Pesach, it must have come from last summer's wheat, because this summer's wheat hasn't made it to the market yet. But but if it's uh, three or four months after Pesach, August, September, October, and onward, then we have to be concerned that a summer wheat product might contain wheat from this year's post-Pesach crop. But in much of, as I said, in much of history, Jews didn't control the supply chain. Jews didn't have transparency into the supply chain. They simply wouldn't know. So if they were strict... That would have meant that for several months of the year, up to six months of the year, they would have had to basically write off grain products. And it wasn't like today we have so many options. We can eat kale and quinoa and, uh, and uh, you know, fish. And they didn't have it. They lived on basic food, on grain. It would have been very, very difficult to, uh, to give up grain. So, so that, that was the social pressure that was pushing them to find a lenient interpretation of the law. In practice, in halacha, why were they lenient? What was the justification? So from the time of Rabbi Yitzhakar Zerua, one of the Ashkenazic Rishonim, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Ashkenazic post can produce a whole string of justifications for why we can be lenient on Chadash. Uh, anytime you have a practice that has so many different justifications, that itself indicates that none of them are that good. If there'd be one single, solitary, you know, reliable justification, that would, that would close the book on the subject. The fact that Gedolei Hadar for hundreds and hundreds of years were kept coming up with new reasons and new arguments itself is a clue that none of these arguments are a slam dunk. They, they're all somewhat problematic. But, and that's the truth. The truth is, as we'll see soon, that although it has been a well-established Ashkenazic custom for many years to ignore the halacha, to largely ignore the halacha of Chadash, there isn't a wholly satisfactory reason for it. There are a number of proposed reasons, all of which have some merit, but there isn't a single, solid, uh, universally accepted reason. And that's why, as we'll see, many, many Gedolei Aposkim over the years said, none of these answers are really that good. A person really should try to be strict where possible. And that's why today, of course, there are people who are meticulous about Chadash, and even Ashkenazim, and, and, and that's why you see some products are certified as Yashan, because increasingly, it's become increasingly common in the U.S. for people to be more strict, as we'll discuss soon. So, what, what are the different etarim that the postman gave for why, for, 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 for why we don't keep Chadash as not as yet? So the first hatter was the Arzurua. The Arzurua was one of the great Ashkenazic Rishonim, one of the early Ashkenazic authorities. He grapples with this question. He says, Tema, I don't understand, he says. Chadash applies in Chutzlarts. It applies to non-Jewish produce as well. How can we buy produce without a certification that it's Yashin? How can we do this? 
He doesn't understand. He says, well, what are we relying on? So he struggles with this question. The minhag was ready to be mekel. He doesn't understand why. His proposal is, he says, Chadash and Chutzlaretz in the diaspora outside Israel, it does apply. He doesn't want to say it doesn't apply. It does apply in Chutzlaretz, he says. However, it's only Midrabban. Even though the Torah says, Bechol Moshevasechem, that does not tell us that Chadash and Chutzlaretz is Tanoim, but we follow the view, he says, that Chadash and Chutzlaretz is Drabbanan. You have to follow Drabbanans as well. But since it's only Midrabbanan, it's more lenient, particularly the, the, the signature property of Yisurim Drabbanan, of rabbinic prohibitions, is that if there's some element of doubt, of Suffolk, we apply the rule of Suffolk Drabbanan Lakula. Since we, have no, since we have no transparency into the supply chain, the, the, our grain is all Suffolk. Our grain is all a Suffolk, whether it's Chadash or Yashan. And since in Chutzlaretz it's only Drabbanan, we can be lenient and, uh, and if, if a grain of unknown status, we can be Mekel to say Suffolk Drabbanan Lakula. That was the great hatter of the Arzeruah, and obviously, as I said earlier, that only applies in Chutzlarz, where it's Drabanan, in Eretz Yisrael, where it's Derai, so you can't rely on this. So this is the first one of the great hatterim of Chadash, that only that in Chutzlarz it's only Drabanan, and if it's a Suffolk, you can be lenient. Obviously, that's limited to Chutzlarz. As I said, in Eretz Yisrael, they, they don't have that hatter, so this hatter does not apply in Eretz Yisrael. That is hatter number one. The hatter number two is the Bach, the Bach was a great Polish Akron from 400, 450 years ago. The Bach said that the Heter of Chadash that we rely on is that produce of a, of a non-Jew, produce that was raised or harvested by a non-Jew, the Isra of Chadash does not apply to such produce. So as long as we're not the farmers, as long as the farmers are, again, how, do we, how he arrives at this conclusion, what, what it's based on in terms of Drushas and Demaris, we're not going to get into the details, but the sheet of the Bach is that non-Jewish produce is not subject to Chadash. So you're allowed to harvest the grain even even before you know, the, the armor is brought, even before it's mutter. The, the mission talks about certain cases that make Xerus uh, that Jews shouldn't be involved in the harvesting, they might come to eat it, but, but in general, it, it, it doesn't matter when you harvest it. It's, uh, the Isser the, 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 the the comes into effect as soon as the grain grows. It remains Isser regardless of when you actually harvest it. The Isser is actually triggered by when it reaches a stage of maturity. Of uh, it, it, Actually, it depends on Nishrasha. It depends when it takes root. Whenever it takes root, the Isser comes into, comes, into, comes into being right then. It remains Isser until the Omer is brought or until that date. Whether it's harvested or not, it doesn't matter. We, we just have to keep track of, of when it took root, when it started to grow. Yes. Sorry? A shita is an opinion, a, a school of thought, or a uh, one, one particular opinion, or one particular school of thought or holding. It could be a group of opinions that, that, that follow a certain, a certain approach, or a group of authorities, a group of... Or uh, yeah, it basically means one legal halachic opinion, one 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 halachic view, whether usur permitted or prohibited or recommended or not recommended. It's, it's one one opinion. A school of thought. Yeah, well, one school of thought about a particular question. We, we call that a sheet, uh, the meaning like a, a, a position out, out of several. In, in halacha, things are not always resolved into one consensus opinion. So when we have multiple opinions, each one we call a sheet, the, the opinion that maintains X, the opinion that maintains Y. The, so the, the the position of the Bach is that the prohibition of Chadash does not apply to grain of to grain of non-Jews. Magen Avram, another Polish Akron, a little bit later, he says what we the, what we the minhag is what we rely on 
is again that Chadash, Chadash outside Eretz Yisrael is Drabanan. So the Arzurua said because it's Drabanan, we can be lenient when it's a Suffolk. Magan Avram says if it's Drabanan, we find in certain cases where Chazal made prohibitions in Chutzlars that have to do with produce. They only made it in certain areas in the Middle East that were near Israel. They, they extended the laws of Israel to, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a certain adjacent region, countries that were kind of on the borders of Israel. They didn't extend these prohibitions to Europe and to faraway countries. Says the Magen maybe we rely on that. that the, the, even though Chazal do say that the prohibition of Chadash extends outside the borders of Eretz Israel, if it's only rabbinic, we can say the extension was limited to some, some areas near Israel and doesn't apply to Europe. Magen Avram says, I only say this liyashif minak I only say this to justify standard practice. Avol bal nefesh yachmer lizar. This is not a, uh, such a solid argument, he says. I don't find this entirely convincing. And therefore a bal nefesh, someone who is meticulous and someone who strives to, to fulfill the law in, in the best way possible, should not rely on this minag and this heter <coughs> and should be stringent. And this approach of the Magen Avram, that even we have a justification for Minak HaOlam, we have a justification for established practice, but it's not a great one, and a person who is meticulous should be stricter. This is the approach of many, of many later authorities. This is an idea we find in Halacha in many areas, that Halacha, especially when there's an established practice, will, will, will go to great lengths to justify it, will, will say things that are maybe not entirely plausible, but we say it to ju- because we have a very strong very strong bias, a very strong, strong presumption to justifying a, an entrenched and well-established practice. However, if the logic isn't really there, if it doesn't seem so compelling, we'll say we don't have to uproot the minog, but it's recommended that a person should be more stringent. We have this, for example, in the laws of Erevin. The, the modern municipal Erevin rely on certain opinions which are not really uh, entirely, uh, entirely accepted. So various authorities have said, including the Mishnaburu over the years, that there is a custom to rely on these leniencies, but someone who is meticulous uh, you know, shouldn't use the standard Arab that relies on these leniencies. And that's why you find people today also who typically avoid using, who avoid using typical large-scale municipal Arab. But in, in, in the laws of Chadesh as well, we find many Akronim took this position that there is some basis to justify the accepted practice of being lenient, but uh, it, it's not really so compelling. Uh, and it, it's, we're, we're only saying this because we have... Uh, an established tradition to justify. That's how Allah works sometimes. But a person who can, who's in a position, to, uh, who cares deeply about the, the halacha and is in a position to be more stringent, should be more stringent. The, it's very interesting that the Vilna Gon and the Shulchan Aruch Harav, the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad Hasidus. So the Vilna Gon and the Shulchan Aruch Harav were, were, were contemporaries. They were on opposite sides of the great, uh, the great controversy of the time, the, 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 the advent of Hasidus and its opposition by, by, the, by the Lithuanians, by the Misnagdim, the opponents of Hasidus. We, we have these storied epic battles between the early Hasidim and their traditionalist opponents. And the, the Vilna Gon and the Shulchan Aruch Harav were two of the most famous antagonists. They, they themselves, had, you know, the Shulchan Aruch Harav had a great respect for the Vilna Gon, but the, they themselves represented two very, very divergent schools of thought. They, they, they were both great poskim. The Vilna Gon is, the, is, 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 at the, is considered one of the most revered authorities in Ashkenazic, in the yeshiva world, practiced over the last several hundred years. And the Shulchan Aruch Harav is one of the greatest Hasidic poskim, of the, the greatest poskim in the Hasidic world of the last several hundred years. The, 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 the Shulchan Aruch Harav's, that safer is the only Hasidic work that is quoted by the Mishnaburah ever, practically ever. The Mishnaburah rarely quotes any, any Hasidic work. That is the only work he quotes, and he quotes that quite heavily. So the Shulchan Aruch Harav was one of the great poskim. 
and at Chabad for sure, they look at him as, as one of their, uh, as their founder and their great authority. However, people have pointed out, Rabbi Norman Lamb and others have pointed out, that in many, my father points this out a lot, that in many areas, despite their great ideological opposition, ideological conflict, in many areas of particular questions in halacha and beyond halacha, they actually agree. And this is one of them. When it comes to Chadash, both the Vilna Gon and the Shulchan Aruch Harav did not feel that there was any really good justification for eating Chadash. The Vilna Gon brings the Bach and he says, Bach is completely wrong, everybody rejects the Bach, he says. Magen Avram has this uh, dubious heter, it's not compelling, he says. He himself says, Ban Lefesh Yachmer, even, even, even if you're not a Ban Lefesh, he says, you, 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 it's not a good heter at all. Vilna Gon was famously, did not feel there was any good justification for, for consuming Chadash. And that's why today one of the main one of the main impetuses for the return to the observance of Chadash is followers of the Vilna Gon, the Salavatric family, the Briskers, the Wayu. The Salavatrics have always been uh, strong followers of the Vilna Gon. So many people today in the yeshiva world, particularly in Wayu and in the, in, the, in the Brisker culture, many people in those circles, based largely on the Gra, have become strict about Chadash again. The Shulchan Aruch Harav, who again in many ways was an ideological opponent of the Gra also felt that there was no good reason for not keeping Chadash. Shulchan Aruch HaRav writes, today the minig is, the olam is mekil, the olam, meaning the general practice, people are not strict. He brings all the different heterim, the Arzarua, the Bach, the Taz, the Magen Avram. However, says the Shulchan Aruch HaRav, kol bal nefesh lo yismach any person who is meticulous and pious will not, should not rely on these, these dubious leniencies. He should be machmer for himself. He's not claiming that you have to protest and you have to be an activist and overturn the custom, but for your personal practice, he says, you should be strict as much as possible because that's what most Rishonim and Akronim have said. The, the, the opinion of the consensus, aside from all these forced explanations to justify the established practice, the opinion of most Rishonim and Akronim, he says, Chadash applies minatora on a biblical level, even, even throughout the world, even in Chutzlarts, even in non-Jewish produce, that is the Iker La'alacha. So you have a minag, you're allowed to rely on the minag, but it's not recommended. A person who's in a position to should be stricter. So my, my understanding is, I looked around it a little bit, Chabad, even though they often follow the Shulchan Aruch Harav, they, they revere him as their great uh, founding authority, Chabad is actually not strict about Chadash. Chabad is, is meticulous about many things. They're actually not, not particular about Chadash. They say the Rebbe, the recent Rebbe, was not particular about Chadash. Chabad actually is not strict, despite the fact that Shulchan Aruch Rav is very clear that a person should, should, uh, should be strict about Chadash. But the, again, Chabad follows the age-old Ashkenazic practice of being lenient, but it's worth noting that the, the Magen Avram, the Vilna Gon, the Shulchan Aruch Rav all say Despite that there's the, despite the minhag, it is not recommended to be lenient, and a person really should be be more meticulous if he can about chadash. There, there's an amazing passage, there's an amazing tshuva in the Avner Nezer. Avner was Avner was was a great Hasidic posik, the, the, the rabbi of Sachachov, 100, 150 years ago, and he he was a tremendous talmud chacham among the among the Hasidim, tremendous posik. He has a tshuva. He has a couple of tshuvas where he addresses the question of Chadash. In one of his tshuvas, he says an amazing thing. He says, in Poland, he says, the Hasidim are lenient about Chadash. Why were they lenient? Why are they lenient, he says? Because the Chose of Lublin, the, the seer of Lublin, the Chose of Lublin was a great early Hasidic master. He was one of the, one of the founders of Polish Hasidus. 
and the Chose of Leblin used to serve, on his table, he used to serve uh, products of Chadash, meaning he was, he was consciously and, and overtly lenient. And the reason he would do that, he says, is because the Chose of Leblin was a, was a descendant of the Bach. The Bach was an earlier, several centuries earlier, a great Polish Akron, and the Chose was a, was a descendant of the Bach. So he... So his family tradition was to follow the, the notable lenient view of his ancestor, the Bach, who felt that Chodesh did not apply to non-Jewish produce. He felt that was a reliable hetzer. And therefore the Chodesh of Leblin was, was lenient following his ancestral tradition. And the Polish Hasidim, who adopted the practices and the positions of the Chodesh of Leblin, were Mekel and Chodesh. Now, when you quote this in a vacuum, you know, it's nice. But if you look at the context of the Avner he is implying that this should not be something that ordinary Jews should rely on. The context of the tshuva is the Avner was debating with his father. He was also a Talmud Chacham. He was debating with his father the, the kashrus of a certain species, a certain subspecies of Esrogim, the, the Esrogim of the Greek island of Corfu. There was a great debate in the postkin whether they were considered reliable, not grafted, whether they were genuine, legitimate, pure breed Esrogim. Tremendous debate about it. Avner was skeptical. He felt we should not rely on them. His father was arguing that these were reliable, authentic Esrogim. So in one of his letters to his father, the, the question came up that the, the Hasidim in Poland used to use Esrogim from Corfu. They have, their minhag was they used Corfu in Esrogim. So if they have a minhag to use it, then uh, that means it's good. Abinezer says, no, the minhag is not dispositive. Why not? So he says because the, the, the reason they use it is because the Bach, the, the, the early Polish Akron, the Bach, happened to have a very lenient view on grafting. He, 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 was, he was particularly lenient when it came to the question of grafting. And the Chose of Leblin, who they follow the Chose, and since the Chose was a descendant of the Bach, they have a particularly lenient attitude toward grafting. But that is not the normative tradition. We don't pass him like the Bach, he says. They have their, their idiosyncratic traditions based on the Chose, based on the Bach. But that does not apply to the rest of Klal And as an example of this, he brings Chadash as well. They are lenient about Chadash because... The Chose was lenient, the Chose was lenient because the Bach was lenient, but the strong implication of Avrenezer is that that was not something of general relevance. That was relevant for the particular group of Polish Hasidim who follow the Chose, who follows the Bach. That's their local custom. Avrenezer's implication is these are not customs that should be in general circulation. Their family tradition, their personal tradition is to follow the Bach. We don't have that tradition, so Avrenezer himself in this tshuva implies that he does not think that the Polish minog to be leading to Chadash should be the general minog of Klal Yisrael. He has another tshuva where he talks about Chadash, but it's not entirely conclusive, I think. But the, so, so again, so we have all kinds of minhagim, all kinds of postkim who give various reasons to be lenient about Chadash, but many of them, especially the later Akronim, confessed, they admitted, that these reasons are not great reasons. They, they all rely on either minority opinions, or uh, there was another hetter, the Ramah gave another hetter, the Ramah, 500 years ago, the Ramah gave a hetter for Chadash. He said, because of our lack of transparency into the supply chain, we have, we have several levels of doubt. There are, there are several, anytime we see some grain, we have to ask ourselves several questions. Is this last year's grain or this year's grain? Even if it's this year's grain, is it winter wheat or summer wheat? Did it come before the Omer or after the Omer? So he says, that, that, since we have multiple levels of doubt, that, that's what we call a Svexveka, a a, a serious double level of doubt where each one is ground for leniency if it, on the lenient side. Therefore, because of the multiple levels of doubt, then we have, uh, we, can, we can be lenient. But, the, but again, many Akram have said, many Akram have argued, it's not really, it's really one big, it's one big doubt. Is it, is it before the Omer or after the Omer? That's not multiple levels of doubt. 
So all these arguments suffer from suffer from the fact that either they either rely on somewhat uh, logically debatable arguments, or they rely on minority opinions, or they rely on kind of unfound speculation of novel ideas that don't have a solid foundation in halacha. And the Akronim recognizes the Akronim, the Magen Avram, the Shulchan Aruch Harav, the Vilna Gon, have all recognized that that, are num- that that have generally recognized that the, le- the leniencies we were, we were the, the, the proposed leniencies are all somewhat debatable. So right. So so I haven't I haven't done an exhaustive exhaustive research. People have written whole books and lengthy articles summarizing all the. I I, I have not done the research to go through all the primary sources. In general, I, I've never seen anyone really debate this issue. I've never seen anyone really challenge the fact that most authorities are are stringent. Baruch Shulchan is one of the is one of the relatively lenient views. He actually does feel that the Heter is more solid. He, he argues at length that the Arzurua is correct. He says that the that the he says all the later the later authorities who all struggle to find complex and debatable pilpulim. They they have the Arzurua, which he thinks is more reliable. He actually does think that the Arzurua is even according to the normal rules of halacha is, is a reliable opinion that we can rely on. Yeah, I'd have to do further research to come up with my, my own. A friend of mine told me, this, a Svardik friend of mine, or a rabbinic friend of mine, told me that his, that his young son, yeshiva student, spent months compiling a whole treatise on Chadash, summarizing all the sources, going through all the sources, and I guess in probably coming out with a stringent view, coming out uh, to probably justify the Svardik. Uh, <coughs> but I haven't had a chance to read it, so I don't know what he says. But yes, so I, I don't know for sure, but the, the general trend of Ashken- even Ashkenazic thought is to concede that not everyone in Shulchan is relatively happy with the Menag, but in general, even Archa Shulchan begins by talking about how difficult it would be in Russia. We'd go for months and months without having any grain product. Even he agrees, even he concedes that there's a great pressure to find a leniency. So this is basically the bottom line, that, that, that throughout the, 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 the history of the Jewish diaspora in Europe, it was very difficult to observe Chadash. Postkim correspondingly came up, accordingly came up with a variety of different eterim, all of, all of which are generally somewhat dubious. They rely on minority opinions or novel ideas or other things. And Post can recognize this. We get Magen Avram, the Gon, the, the Shulchan Harav, all admitted that it was somewhat dachuk. One of the most interesting comments on the, on kind of that, that straddles this divide between, on the one hand, acknowledging it's the Minog, on the other hand, saying it's not really a great idea, is, uh, is, 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 is an incredible account of the Chassim Sofer. So the Chazim Sofer was the, was the great, great postage in came from Germany, was a Rav in Hungary, and he was one of the, the, the Gadladar of that time. And he was a student of two great Talmudic Chachamim, one of whom was Reb Nassim Adler. Reb Nassim Adler was, uh, was little, little is known about him, he didn't really write that much, but, but he was a, a revered mentor of the Chazim Sofer. And the Chazim Sofer records, whenever he speaks about his Rebbe, Reb Nassim Adler, he speaks about him with, with such uh, honor and, and deference. He says, I saw, he says, the minog of my, my teacher, Murray Hagon, Rav Adler, that on, the, that on the second day of Sukkot, not the second day, on, on the Yontiv of Sukkot, he would not call up to the Torah in his minion, a Levi for Levi, someone who eats Chadash. Why, why then? So the background is as follows. The, the, the Psukim of the Isra of Chadash, Velechem, Bekali, Becharmel, Lo Sochwa, that's my Yamazet, the Psukim of the Isra of Chadash appear in Pashas Emmer. The, Emmer has one of the Torah's lists of all the laws of Yom Tovim. We read, we read that section of Emmer three times of the, during the year. We read it Parshas Emmer. We read it on the second day of Pesach. 
and we read it on the first two days of circus. Um, I actually, when I wrote about this for the Kohl, I wrote that we read it on the first two days of Pesach and Circus, and someone from the shul caught me, actually, uh, Mitch Tarragon caught me and said, that's actually only the second day of Pesach, and he had lamed it, not the first day of Pesach. But anyway, we read the, we read the, 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 the Parsha of Emmer, the, the section of the Yom Tovim and Emmer, three times a year, on Parsha's Emmer, when we get to that Parsha, Pesach, second day, and Circus. Now, Two out of those three times, we read at a time where, as I said, there is no problem of Chadash. It's shortly after, on Pesach, there's no problem because, because we, uh, Pesach actually is tricky because after the, after the second or third day of Pesach, everything is fine. Technically speaking, for the first day or two of Pesach, before you brought the Omer, before the 16th has passed, there is an Isra of Chadash, it's applicable. In practice, we don't worry about it because we don't need a whole lot of grain products on Pesach, with the one, except, the one exception being Matzah. Matzah is always is always yashan today because matzah is always made from winter wheat. As I said before, winter wheat is always winter wheat is always yashan. Whether that was true in the time of the Chassam Sofer, I don't know. I don't know if historically winter wheat was always used for matzah. But the the the, 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 the implication of the story is that on Pesach, the second day of Pesach, when they read Parshas Emar, nobody was eating chadash. When we read Parshas Emar, you read it a little bit after Pesach, I think, in Iyer. Again, there's no problem of Chadash, because in Iyar everything is, everything is Yashan. The problem is Sukkot. When you read the Pasha of, when you read the Pasha's Emmer on the first two days of Sukkot, at that point, Chadash, at that time of the year, Chadash products have already made their way to the market. And Jews who were not meticulous about Chadash were already eating products that could be Chadash at that time of the year. So Ramnasan Adler would not give the Aliyah, when we read those Psukim, to someone who wasn't meticulous about Chadash. He said... The barley had already been harvested and already made it to the consumer. It was Kodim HaOmer. And the Levi says, you're going to give him the Aliyah. The Levi was when you read that Aliyah of the Lechem Bekali Becharmel, the Psukim of Chadash. The Levi's going to read, they're going to read, he doesn't read it himself, Balkari reads it today, but they're going to read before him the Aliyah of Chadash. And then he's going to make the bracha on the Torah. They're going to read that Pasuk to him, and he's going to go home, and he's going to drink his beer and drink his liquor that was made with barley. And he's going to eat his bread, which was uh, fermented with, uh, with Shimrei Shecher. They used to use some of the, the hops or some, some product of the beer to ferment the bread. Rov posts him say, Chadash is awesome in Deraisim, is Manazep. So there's a certain hypocrisy, he says, for someone to get up there and get the Aliyah and have the Pasuk of Chadash read, and then go home and go eat his Chadash. So it didn't bother him, apparently, that a guy would get the Aliyah on Pesach and, and then six months later would go home and eat Chadash. The hypocrisy wasn't as pronounced. Maybe, maybe he'll become more firm by next Pesach. Maybe the Chuvas since last, by, by next Sukkot, maybe the Chuvas since last year. I don't know. But the hypocrisy wasn't as, wasn't as blatant. But apparently on Sukkot, Rabbi Nassim Adler felt to give him the Aliyah, he's going to go home to have his Yantif Suda and eat Chadash products. That's intolerable. You can't give somebody that Aliyah. And he, he says the same thing about Prusbal. He says that today, it's very common to write Prusbal. The Shul had Prusbal writing stations where, where at the end of Shemitah, everyone wrote, everyone had the option to write a Prusbal. But uh, it wasn't always done. This is a firmer thing that we do today. For hundreds of years, people weren't always in the practice of writing Prusbals. And post struggle with it. Why not? Shemitah, according to most post applies to Manazah as well. So we're not going to get into the laws of Shemitah right now. But again, there are justifications, very similar, but they're all somewhat dubious. So the Chassam Sofer says the same thing applies to Shemitah. Someone who's not writing a Prusbal shouldn't be given that Aliyah because maybe there's basis to be lenient, but uh, it's hypocrisy to get that Aliyah and then to say, I'm not actually observing the Halacha. So the Chassam Sofer, again, if he really felt the person was an Aparian, was a Russia, <coughs> he probably would have said so much more strongly. 
So he agreed. He agreed. The person that presumably he agreed. The person had some basis for leniency. We have all these acronym, Rishonim and acronym, who gave basis for leniency, and it was very hard to be stringent. But Lamaisa, the hetter is on is on shaky grounds, and therefore at least don't give him that aliyah. At the very least, don't uh, don't actually give him that aliyah. It's interesting that the the chadash that was apparently a problem, he said, was barley. For us, it's generally wheat, but barley is also a problem. But wheat is the most common problem. For whatever reason, in the Chassam Sefer's time, barley was the big issue. I'm not sure why. Maybe wheat didn't get to the market till later, after circus. Barley was the issue. The reason barley, we don't eat that much barley. Most of us, you know, our cuisine is not a heavy, for most of us, it's not a heavy barley-intense cuisine. As a, in, in my diet, for example, I eat barley in cholent. I sometimes eat mushroom barley soup. Um, and that's pretty much it. Those who drink beer, obviously, are drinking a barley product because beer, beer is made from barley. Some liquors, maybe. So that's what the Chantar meant. He says, apparently, beer, beer was even more of a staple back then, Jews and non-Jews alike, than it is today. Beer was considered a staple drink. Many of the postkim who worry about Chadash worry about beer. I, I don't know why beer was such an essential. I, there's an urban legend. It's not, apparent, it's not apparently entirely true, but there, there is a, there's an idea that floats around that they used to drink primarily beer and liquor because, wine, beer, and liquor, because the water wasn't safe. The, the, the water was infested with... Uh, I, I, I looked into this once. It, it's not apparently entirely true. They did drink a lot of beer, that much we know. Even, even peasants, even simple people drank a lot of beer. By one account, I read that something like 40% of their caloric intake was, was from beer. It was apparently a very easy source of calories. It was... Uh, not sure why it was easier than bread, but apparently it was a it was a staple of their diet. And many postkin worried about the beer. Many postkin seemed very concerned about the beer. Again, in our Shulang says they couldn't eat bread, they couldn't eat anything for six months. But for us, I'm not a beer drinker, so I'm, maybe I don't maybe I don't fully appreciate what a hardship it would be to go without beer for a few months. But the several mentions beer apparently was the was the problem and certain alcohols, certain liquors, but the Whatever it was, the, the, the minog was to be lenient for many centuries, and we have a variety of aterim, and, and most of them are not are accepted, they're not so great, but that was the minog. Again, Svardim never had this whole tradition. Either they, their diet was different, or the hardship wasn't as great, or they just stuck to the letter of the law more carefully, but Svardim historically, all these poskim, or Zerua, and Bach, and Magen Avram, and uh, Taz and Orcha Shulcha, these are all Ashkenazi poskim. Svardim never had the same tradition of leniency. And that's why today Svardim are typically stricter. And also in Eretz Yisrael, they're, they're stricter because several of the Hatterim rely on the fact that we're in Chutzlar. It's either the way the Arzarua put it, that in Chutzlar it's, it's, uh, it's only Drabanan, so the Suffolk is Mutter. Or the way the Magan Avram puts it, that in Chutzlar, it's, if, it's an, if it's only Drabanan, they were only Gozer in the areas around Eretz Yisrael. But again, in Eretz Yisrael, it's Eretz or according to the, the Bach, the Tua of non-Jews is not subject to Chadash, but Jew, Tua of Jews is uh, Israel, the farms are Jews. Many, of the, many or most of the farms are Jews, so you don't have that Hatter. So many, many, many of the Hatterim don't apply in Eretz Israel, and that's why in Eretz Israel they are, they are much stricter. The bottom line is, and as I said, the major cashless agencies in the U.S. will certify products even if they are not guaranteed to be, to be Yasha. Several decades ago, there was a there was a movement to try to increase the ability to observe to observe yashan. So even even in cases where there isn't a formal cashless agency certifying a product as yashan, people did. I forget the name of the person who did it, but uh, but but pe- but but, but pe- pe- people tirelessly compiled, you know, grassroots compiled uh, 
compiled guides of, of, of what products of, of they, 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 they inquired with factories, they did research into the industry, they figured out what products use winter wheat, what products use summer wheat, and each individual plant and each individual brand and product, they, they tried to track down <coughs> when, they, when they started using grain from the new year, and, and, and they often were able to correlate it with product codes. So the, the, the packaged package stuff often has a product code. It's often a somewhat obscure, uh, not a series of letters and numbers, but it's not a secret code. You can often figure out what it means. They, they, the date is often embedded in those codes. Sometimes it's a use by date, which is a year into the future, but that date is calculated to be, let's say, a year past the, the packaging date. So people, so people with, with a tremendous amount of work developed a, developed a, tireless, a tireless system that people put in tireless work to, to develop a, even without formal certification, a series of, of, of rules based on product codes and plant codes, which plant it was manufactured in and which brand and so on, based on some level of cooperation by some companies, to give, to, to, to give rules for when, when a consumer can, can assume that a product is, is guaranteed not to be ashan, not to be chadash, even, even absent a formal certification. And this guide is still produced today. It's available for, for download for free. And this is kind of the Bible for, for those who want to be meticulous about Yashin in the U.S. This is the Bible. It has, a, it has a pages and pages of lists of products. It's free. You can certainly buy anything that has a hechsher that says Yashin. You can buy anything from Eretz Israel. And absent those, you can buy anything that the guy tells you, anything with a product code of X and a plant code of Y, can be assumed to be Yashin. And this is what many people do in the U.S. They, they, they look for one of these three, either a guaranteed you know, certified Yashin product or Israeli product or something that has... That 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 is that is known that believed to be Yasha based on the codes of the product. Surely concerns of food for people and not non edible products or animal feed. It, right. It, it does not. It does. It does not include uh, anything you're not eating. You, you can certainly a soap or a paint or whatever. It, it certainly does, certainly doesn't apply. It's not like Pesach where even you can't have chametz in your house. It's only a prohibition on eating it. I don't think it applies to animal food. I'm not absolutely sure, but the. But that's the that's the situation of the U.S. In, in, in areas that have that have uh, a, a lot of uh, a lot of Sfardim maybe or a lot of yeshiva a lot a lot of yeshiva graduates, places like Lakewood or New York or even Baltimore, places that are kind of on the cutting edge of uh, advanced uh, chumras, so the advanced uh, hakpada. That it, it, it's very easy to find yashim stuff. Many many eating establishments will be certified as yashim. Many, uh, I've been in Lakewood where I've even asked, you know, I was in the yeshiva once, I asked, is the food yashin? They, they couldn't even tell me offhand. They just assumed everything is yashin. They had to go inquire because it was just, people stop even asking because there's a tradition of being, just like we don't ask, is it kosher? If you go to a, you know, a firm shul, you don't ask, is the food kosher? Of course it's kosher. So in some places they've gotten far enough that it's assumed to be yashin. In, in, in other places, you cannot assume things are yashin. In, in, in other places, like here in our area, for example, some stores, some restaurants are, are, are will, will tell you, will tell you it's Yashin, like Ben Yehuda, for example, not everything is Yashin, but they'll tell you the pizza is, or certain, I think certain things are, certain things are not, but, but they'll tell you which products are, which products are not. Certain other stores are not assumed to be Yashin, and, and then someone who's strict by Yashin won't eat until, uh, you know, well, again, people have different levels of commitment to Yashin. Some people will point blank, absolutely refuse to eat a product that's not certified, that's not known to be Yashin. Some people make a best effort attempt to observe Yashin. Like we saw, so the language of some of the posts was, 
try to be strict, to try to observe it as much as possible. So many people adopt a kind of, uh, a kind of intermediate, pragmatic stance that, uh, with that in their own home, where they control the purchasing, they, 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 they try to be meticulous about Yashin, but when they, when they visit, when they go to their parents, when they, when they go to an event that doesn't, that doesn't, feature, that, that doesn't uh, guarantee Yashin, they won't be as strict about it. Some people are meticulous for themselves, not for their kids. So, th- so, so even, even people who do try to be strict, there are a, uh, there's a variety of, of levels of, uh, of how strict to be, and it goes in the reverse as well. Even people who are not meticulous about Yashin, some people, uh, how, how, how far accommodating people will be. Yale, for example, when, when he gives Mishloch Manos, so Sarah, so Sarah and Yale make a point of uh, preparing some, some, at least some Zonos that has, uh, that has Yashin ingredients for the... Sarah, okay, because, because they know that there are, even, 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 even if she's not meticulous herself, she knows there are people who are, and she wants, and she wants to be able to provide them with Mishloch Manas as well. Some functions or some events, you know, some institutions, even if they don't follow the stringent view, if they're trying to accommodate people, will try to be strict. It can be difficult. Some people are not. So again, there are, there are, many, there are many different Minhagim, many different standards, but it is true that over the last 50 to 75 years or so, that there has been an increasing level of uh, meticulousness, partly just because people strive to fulfill the halacha as best as they can, partly because, because of the improve, improvements in logistics and transparency, we're just able to, to figure out much more. In Europe, they had no choice. They couldn't. Here, with codes, with communications, with email, we're, we're able to, to, to get much more insight, and we're, we're just practically more able to be stricter. So some, some of it is that. We, we have more choices. We have more options. In Europe, you lived in a village. It wasn't like you could buy stuff on Amazon and ship stuff in. You were limited to what the local farmers were selling. You, so you didn't know what it was, and you couldn't control it. And here, we, we just have so much more choice, so many more options. So for a variety of reasons, people have become more meticulous today. But as I said, the, the, the major cashless agencies still follow the traditional Ashkenazic view that they do not, requi- they do not typically require products to, to, to be certified as Yashan. Before, to be, to be, before certifying them, they will, some, they will add it as an optional certification. And many events I've been to, I think the last few weddings I've been to, for example, in this area in Baltimore here, have uh, the Star K, for example, does not require food to be yashan to certify it. But the last few weddings I've been to have, have said that uh, the, the, the food is all, all yashan.